Germantown Community Radio, 92.9 FM, WGGTLP, Philadelphia, and online at gtownradio.com. This is What Do You Know About That? A radio show about anything and everything happening in our community, our city, and our world. Here are your hosts, Eric Gershnow and Mary Angela Saavedra. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What Do You Know About That? I'm Eric, and joined with me is, of course, as always, the lovely Mary Angela. How's it going, Mary Angela? Hello, Eric. Hello. Happy Thursday. Yes, happy Thursday. Love a good Thursday. As usual. (laughs) Uh, This weather, I just have to say, has been progressively getting better, but has been quite crazy. All over the place. All Uh, over the place. It's kind of biblical, actually. It goes back and forth. It's sunny. It's rainy. It's hail. It can't seem to make up its mind. A little bit crazy. Either way, slowly getting closer towards summer, so hopefully some more consistently warm days so I can hang my jacket up in the closet and say goodbye to it for the season. That would be lovely. I'm looking forward to that. What's going on this day in science, Eric? Well, this day in science, I'm glad you asked, April 14th. Uh, This day in science, geneticists produce disease-resistant human embryos. A team of geneticists from Newcastle University in England, Newcastle, (laughs) successfully created an embryo using genetic material from three people. What? A process they believe will increase natural disease resistance in the offspring. Though genetic engineering remains somewhat taboo in the scientific community, the researchers believe that three parent embryos may serve as a way to prevent hereditary transmission of otherwise deadly mitochondrial diseases. That's crazy. That's, Three people. Like, that's a little too Dr. Frankenstein for my tastes. It is a little bit, right? I mean, that just seems like you're going against nature a little. Yeah. It's, it's kind of I mean, like, it's nice to want us to stop diseases, right? And the truth be told, you're, you're not going to eradicate disease it's never going to go away. It's part of natural selection, and you know, Mother Nature built that in so that human beings, you know, can't live forever like vampires. Right. But yeah, that sounds crazy. That sounds like something that you would maybe expect to hear from maybe a country that doesn't have the kind of rules and regulations to govern the the moral implications of it. Yeah. So where was that? What country? Was this that? was in 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 the UK. Oh. So, but, uh, you know, I, I I guess there's a difference between doing it in an academic lab versus, yeah, you know, doing it full blown. But I, I remember when they um, created the first genetic clone of the sheep. Yeah. That was what, uh, early 2000s, right? And yeah, was Dolly, a, wasn't that her Yeah, name? yeah. That was like a big deal. A lot of people were freaked out about that. But I will say there are other countries that have been, only just because I kind of have my thumb on the pulse of this, but other countries that have done way more, as you say, Dr. Frankenstein-y type genetic experiments. So uh, yeah. we'll see. Pretty soon we'll be know like, how I feel about that. It'll be like Gattaca pretty soon. No, no, that's, <laughs> yes, that's what I'm trying to avoid. I think that's wrong. Aww. But anyway, what's going so, on in the neighborhood? Well, on my end, I just came across a few things. So um, interesting little article I read from HYY about bird watching. Uh, so, you know, I never really stopped to think about bird watching, particularly in Philadelphia. And 
as you know, historically, this is sort of a, an activity that's been predominantly um, male-centric, white male-centric, affluent type activity. But um, in FDR Park in South Philly, there's a, an actual initiative by a small group um, that's trying to expand the, 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 the circle of, of bird watchers to be more inclusive. So apparently there's a number of minority groups that are bird-centric. They call them birdies <laughs> or, or birders. I'm a birdie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but in FDR Park, though, they uh, this group, I mean, they, they're, they're inclusive, so anyone can kind of come and join, and they'll actually hand out binoculars to people. And apparently they, this happens in FDR Park because I guess it's the right environment to attract a lot of birds, so that a lot of birds have been descending on that area. So bird watchers have been actively going to FDR Park to uh, observe, but this group is really designed to educate minorities on how to go about bird watching, which is really kind of interesting. So it's educating folks who are maybe not familiar with bird watching who want to get more involved. And then, and then it also talks about Arbory Arboretum, which I, I never really stopped to think about, but apparently that's that's a bird haven. So a lot Yes, of there's go, a bird sanctuary there, isn't there? Yeah, I'm I think pretty so, sure yeah. there is, yeah. And that's uh, right here in the neighborhood. It's right here in the neighborhood. You don't have to go far to Arbory Arboretum. It's a beautiful spot. And a, because of the interest, they're actually opening... I believe there's a center there. I've, mm-hmm. I've only been there once or twice, and I haven't seen the full landscape there, but... They do have structured activities at Aubrey Arboretum, and they're kind of building more into their program around bird watching. So mm. if anyone's interested in bird watching, you can go to Aubrey Arboretum or you can go check it out in FDR Park. Let's see. There was one other thing that came on my radar. It was an interesting article from The Atlantic about our good friends, the spotted lanternfly. Oh, no. It's, it's coming back oh. around. As we get into the warmer months, we expect to see more of these guys start to crop up. But it was an interesting article because it was talking about how, you know, everyone's been very proactively going out and squashing bugs to the point where people are... There's apparently, like, TikTok and, and YouTube channels that are dedicated to people going around and squashing spotted lanternflies. Yeah. But it turns out that they're not as at least perceivably not as much of a menace as we initially made them out to be being an invasive species. So despite our efforts and going out and squashing bugs, there's been a number of other environmental elements that have kind of thwarted the the expansion of the spotter and lanternfly, again, because it's not really their native area. But one of the telltales is they target like vineyards, apparently, mm-hmm. right? And they haven't seen the kind of decimation that they were projecting based on the numbers of spotted lanternflies since they started coming over here, which has been a while. I, it's been a couple of years. Yeah, it's a couple of years. Yeah, but three. it started, I think, further down south and has been progressively moving up the, mm-hmm. the eastern seaboard. But, um, yeah, it was talking about invasive species and just, just some other natural elements to the environment that's native to the U.S. that is conducive to the lanternflies not propagating as much as we expected, although hmm. it doesn't seem to abate the number of carcasses strewn about on the sidewalks and everything. It's quite yeah. amazing how they because people squish them accumulate. And they're just there. Well, remember that time we were trying to eat lunch downtown and oh, we were gosh, literally yeah. being pummeled by them? So when you're in an area where there's a lot of them, they don't 
think twice about landing on you. Like, they don't care. They're like, you might as well be a tree. You're sitting out there, like, trying to eat your food, and they're just like, hello, and they're just going to, and they're big. They're not small at that stage, you know? They're, like, they're they're pretty big. And I just, I remember I just, could, like, couldn't eat because they just kept, like, flying onto my leg and my arm, and, like, they were all in the way. And They seem clumsy. Yeah. Like a clumsy <laughs> bug. Like, they just, they fly into everything. Yeah. Go figure. Strange little bug. Um, well, uh, on my end, uh, some things that have come across, just a reminder again about that electronics recycling on May 14th. Oh, May 14th. Yes. Yep. Please Perp- remind me because we have a number of things we got to get rid of. Absolutely. So. It's at Chestnut Hill College. It's Saturday, May 14th, 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. And you can bring things with batteries, Yay. which this makes this electronics recycling a little different than other ones because the other ones you have to just do things that don't have batteries this one you can totally do things with batteries so um definitely make a plan to do that anything that plugs in um anything with batteries it is electronics recycling saturday may 14th at chestnut hill college uh the other thing was we've got to watch out you know just kind of a follow-up on the scam episode that we talked about there's Kind of uh, a new one that's been, I've been noticing a lot of people posting about it because it's been happening to them. People claiming to be from Pico. Mm. And uh, this particular one now is about them showing up to say they're replacing the meters and they want you to pay $399 that will be reimbursed in four to five days. Um, And you have to do it or your service will be cut. That's what they're telling people. And so, of course, seniors would be very susceptible to believing that. Right. You know, I mean, it's like, oh, my gosh, I don't want my electricity to be cut off. This must be for real. They're wearing like, you know, kind of reflective jackets. No, they don't. But they're, you know, wearing clothing that makes them seem legit, you know, reflective jackets like, you know, with the. That like will reflect light. You know what I'm talking about. Anyway, oh, um, like like the hazard. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Construction guys wear. Yeah, right. Um, so yeah, they basically, they, they give you lots of different ways to pay. You can pay with Zelle, you can pay with Cash App, you can pay with PayPal, of course. None of that's not paying Pico with Cash App. Exactly. (laughs) Right. I was like, none of that is, is true. It's, yeah, it's a scam. Um, I have heard most of the things that I've seen have been people saying these people are coming door to door, but one post did say it was a call. One post said they got a phone call. And it was a very similar, um, you know, their their rates were going to double if they didn't get their meter replaced. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so it's a lot of scare tactics. Um, this this person definitely um, posted on here recently. A lot of people thank them. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's very much like just in general, be smart about it. You know what I mean? Pico is... If something like that needed to happen, there would be so many other different ways you would get communicated with. There'd be a letter. You'd probably get be... a formal letter from Pico yeah. just to say, hey, just FYI, this is happening. And just as a reminder for the folks about scams, the uh, when whoever is trying to scam you, you can usually, one of the tells is there's this urgency in their yep. voice. Oh, we got to do this or this is going to happen. Yeah, Your, your a... electricity is going to get shut yep. off. Okay. That should be the, the, the red flag. The big red flag. This is probably yeah. not real. Yep. So that's all I got. That's all you got? That's all I got. Yeah, it's been it's been pretty, uh, how should I say, at least on my end, kind of low-key. My head's been down, mostly just focused on work, just waiting for the weather to get better and hopefully, you know, start getting out and doing more stuff. Well, yeah. One thing I will say, though, you know, we talked about the noise ordinance about 
you know, decibels and everything. We talked about leaf blowers mm-hmm. possibly being banned. I guess nothing's happened on that because this morning um, I heard very loudly leaf blowers, <laughs> like really aggressive leaf blowing. So, um, you know, just just as a, as a follow up on that, I don't think there's been any movement <laughs> on, on, on any banning or any ordinance requiring decibels to remain at a certain level, which makes me sad. Well, I guess there's there's the rules and then there's enforcing them. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. So, what are we talking about this week, Mary Angela? I am so glad you asked. We are talking about something that has fascinated me since the beginning of the pandemic because that is when I um, watched a documentary about it, and uh, you know, because I had some time on my hands there, and uh, and then something very exciting happened uh, recently that added to the story, and I got like sucked back into it again. So mm-hmm. I am going to talk about Ernest Shackleton and the Imperial Trans Antarctic Expedition. Shackleton. Yes. So tell me a little bit about what you know about this. So. What I know was from a documentary you and I watched. It was hosted by Lawrence Fishburne, and they it was a two elements to this documentary. One piece was they were looking for his ship, the Endurance, and they're at the same time giving story, the backstory behind this whole trip to it was Antarctica, right? Mm-hmm. And he went to go visit. So it was the intention was to go to Antarctica and I forget the objective. To cross it, to be the first person to cross Antarctica but, from side to side. But that didn't happen. That did not happen. And there's a really amazing story that I am surprised has not yet been made into a movie, although I would imagine it would be like Castaway. But there was um, his his whole entire crew was essentially shipwrecked in Antarctica. And it was about, I don't know, just under a year's worth of time. But they ended up making it out alive, all of them. He rescued successfully his entire crew, but not without some trials and tribulations. Yeah, so um, that's pretty much it in a nutshell. But um, but what's fascinating about it, as you mentioned, was that, yes, it started out as this expedition to be the first um, party to, first expedition to cross Antarctica. And as we know, Antarctica is a continent. It is huge. But the actual land mass of Antarctica is relatively small because mm-hmm. it's surrounded by glaciers and ice packs. And so it's very hard to like truly tell where land begins and stops because right. of how everything is. Now, the other thing is it's the Southern Hemisphere, which means winter is backwards for them, right? So when it's summer up here, for us, it's winter down there, Mm. right? So you have to keep that in mind when planning an expedition to the south, which he did. Um, He very much had planned to leave in the fall when it's fall for us and head down there. So he'd be basically arriving in late spring. And remind me that what's the time frame? When was this happening? Yep, I'm I'm going to tell you all of it. Okay, great. (laughs) Right. But so his... His plan was, you know, arrive late spring, have the summer to get, you know, because, of course, in the summer in the Southern Hemisphere that the ice should be looser. You should be able to move a little more freely, get in, get as close to the land shelf as possible, Mm -hmm. get off the ship, dock the ship there, get off the ship and then walk from there all the way across through the South Pole. So somebody had made it to the South Pole before, but nobody had gone all the way across, right? Mm-hmm. And they were going to meet 
another party, supposedly, on the other side where they'd catch another boat, which would take them around. They'd get to their boat, be able to take it back. Got it. Um, he had a whole plan. Uh, what happened was they left. Um, well, they, they left in sort of early fall, but they had to sail to South America and to Buenos Aires and to do all this stuff first, you know, load up get everything together, do their thing. So they truly left South America for Antarctica on November 5th, 1915. Nope, wow. I'm sorry. November 5th, 1914. We're going to cross into okay. 1915. So November 5th, 1914. So and, fall um, time. Got it. Yes. And so that was actually, November 5th was when they landed in South Georgia, which is the last sort of, island on the very edge of where you're about to start hitting Antarctica, Mm. truly. They stayed on that island for a month because weather conditions were iffy, you know, spring like it is here, April showers bring May flowers or storms, there's things, Mm -hmm. stuff's happening. Yeah, he, he was like, we can't sail across right now. Now's not a good time. Let's wait. So they waited it out till December 5th. So December 5th would be basically like May 5th. Um, for us, like spring wise, and they take off and they're like, okay, great, here we go. We're gonna, you know, maybe like early June for us. Sorry, my comparisons are bad. I'll stop. Cinco de Mayo, <laughs> right? Um, anyway, they leave uh, for Antarctica on December fifth. It took them until January fifteenth when they got to this glacier that would have made an excellent place to dock. Mm-hmm. They were like, oh, look, here's this glacier. It's, you know, big. It's stable. We can dock here. We can get off and we can start our walking expedition. But Shackleton was like, mm, this glacier is a little further north than I was hoping to get. I would like to sail a little further south and get us closer to the actual South Pole because then we have less to walk, right? Mm-hmm. It's less less journey. That would be great. Sounds like a brilliant idea. Right. In theory, that would have been a really excellent plan. Except, yeah, (laughs) there's all this pack ice. Right. Well, there's all this pack ice that he doesn't realize is there. So he makes his decision to continue forward, and it turns out to have been a really bad one. A really bad decision. He should have docked at the glacier when he had the chance. Yeah, because one of the issues with Antarctica is you, you have the ocean currents that are moving around it, and then you have ice that's forming on the surface that's that's melting and forming. So, Yeah, and at this point, he had already navigated quite a bit of pack ice to get to this glacier. You know, like they had already been traveling through quite a bit. So he's okay. he's in it, you know, and now we're... You know, coming and approaching, let's see, it's January, so that's like, you know, heart of summer, basically. Mm -hmm. So, you know, days are (laughs) going to start getting shorter, and winter's going to be coming, and he's still looking for the place to dock to start the expedition. Right. So, um, basically, I guess January 18th of 1915, now we've crossed into 1915, right? New Year happened. Um, They can see land. Okay, yeah. Right? So January 15th was when they saw the glacier. They were like, no, let's keep going. They kept going. January 18th, they got close enough to be like, that's land in the distance, we think. Now, again, right, it's, maybe it wasn't. It looked like it was. They thought it was. So he's like, okay, this this is pretty great. Um, we've made it this far, but 
the ice is getting thicker and the ice is getting harder to break through. They're having to like really like work hard every day to like get it out of the way well, so they it, can get yeah, in. Yeah, because it's like refreezing. Correct. <laughs> At and night, temperatures drop and everything they did during the day is like yeah. Beep. And I remember they the boat though was designed the boat which is named the endurance was designed specifically for driving through ice right there are some structural elements that were built into the ship to help it correct as 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 much elements as could be built in in the early 1900s right i mean technology of like what we have now as ice cutters didn't exist so but but it had like like a steel bow or Mm -hmm. something to kind of help yep so that it wouldn't but in the end it still was a wooden ship yeah. <laughs> it was a wooden reinforced wooden ship. And ultimately what I recall happening was they got so far into the shelf and then as the ice started to freeze again around them faster than they could break it, it, yep. it basically just their their ship got seized in the ice. That's correct. So on February 24th, 1915, it became really obvious that they were not going to be able to break free, that they were not going to be able to turn around, that they were not going to be able to go further forward. Mm -hmm. So now winter is coming. Right. And really all you can do now is wait for the following summer. Wait for this ice to shift and move. So he's like, okay, um, here's what we should do. We should get ready to spend the winter in Antarctica. It's going to be okay. We've got fires on the ship. We can like, you know, burn them in rotation, make sure that, you know, we don't waste fuel. They built um, the book called them dog glues, <laughs> like, like, like little igloos for the dogs. Because remember, they had all these animals that because animals. the plan was to walk across Antarctica, right? Mm-hmm. And you'd have to have animals, sled dogs carrying your food and your rations and things. So, and they did have supplies. Now, because they weren't making the actual trek, there had been... um. I guess, like supply depots set up along the way by other expeditions mm-hmm. that their plan was to intercept. And since that wasn't happening, now their whole ration plan had to change. Sometime between February 24th and October 27th, the ice uh, of 1915, the ice finally won and started to crush the ship and water started to come in. Right. So now we're in October and it's, you know, water is, is starting to, to breach the hull and they're trying to repair it. They're trying to do stuff, but now they can't live in it. They've got to get off the ship. On October 30th, they realized we should probably start moving toward um, what they called Elephant Island, mm-hmm. which is an island that you could then sort of sometimes see where South Georgia was like you could if you could get to there it's on the very edges there's definitely like a whaling station there Um, there's several things that could or maybe the whaling station was on I'm sorry I'm getting my things confused I think the the whaling station was on South Georgia but there are people that are stationed correct there there is definitely things that could help them if they can make it to Elephant Island and so they have to start walking and that means taking only what you need to carry and before i talk about that piece i'd like to talk about all the people on this expedition because you know we say like it's a it's a bunch of people but it it was people they had he had two surgeons on this expedition Mm. he had a geologist a meteorologist a physicist a biologist an official photographer an official artist. This guy's job was just to sketch things. Um, 
He had a motor expert who later became the storekeeper for obvious reasons when they didn't have a motor to adhere to anymore. Um, They had a carpenter, a cook, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six able seamen, two firemen, and a stowaway, which this book says later became a steward. A stowaway. (laughs) Correct. Why would you want to stow away on a ship going to Antarctica? On an expedition to Antarctica. No, thank you. Yeah, I'm sure that person regretted that decision. Right. Also, you know, a navigator, first officer, second officer, third officer, two engineers. Then there was the captain. There was a second in command. And then Shackleton himself was the leader. So it's a lot of people. Yeah. And and you mentioned the the photographer because there's a lot of actual like film footage, right? From being trapped. And what's interesting about that is that he left behind hundreds of photos he destroyed lots of lots of film footage because he couldn't carry it and ended up taking like 150 of the best ones Mm. because he was like you know we need some documentation but also we can't afford to carry all this because at this point there weren't many dogs left and i won't go into all the reasons why there weren't many dogs left but you can figure out why there weren't many dogs left Mm -hmm. um but also you know Lack like of, chicken. Right. Lack of provisions uh, required hunting and, and, you know, gathering penguins and seals and things like that. So they had to carry that kind of equipment with them was yeah. really important because now they're going to trek and move. Yeah. And, they're in survival mode. Yeah. I was like, hopefully they're going to they're going to run into that. So it took from October 27th when the hull was first breached to November 21st, 1915 for the endurance to officially sink. Hmm. And um, on October 30th, they started, you know, moving. But the moving was slow because the weather conditions were so bad. So they weren't going very far on any particular day. They could still see their ship. So then they created a camp December 21st of 1915. It's called Patience Camp. And the reason why it was called that is because they couldn't leave right then, right? Because it was December. So they were like, we've got to wait before we take off and patience right exactly we we have to have patience just wait so to put some things into perspective they were at patience camp from december 21st of 1915 all the way until april 9th 1916 so if you're doing Uh, the math (laughs) when did they leave they've been in antarctica for Pretty long time. Uh, yeah, <laughs> probably longer than they wanted to be. Right. So they actually stay there for quite a while, and April 9th is when they launched the boats for Elephant Island. So that was where they were were trying so April to. April 9th, two thousand. I'm sorry, 1915. 16. 1916. 1916. That's when they left to go. Yes, and they okay. landed. So they weren't far from Elephant. Island. They landed on Elephant Island. I wonder why it's called Elephant Island. I don't know. It's just what it's called. Um, <laughs> on April 15th, 1916. Okay. Mm-hmm. So now they're all there together on Elephant Island. They've taken the boats across and they're there. And that's now where those guys have to stay while the rest launch for South Georgia Island. That's where the whaling station is. Uh, that's where the people are, the people that can rescue them. Right. But he can't take the whole crew. Right. They just barely made it across this little bit of sea to Elephant Island from Patience Camp. 
So here we are on April 24th of 1916, and Shackleton departs on a small lifeboat, basically. I mean, it's a little more than just your standard lifeboat. It can handle open water, Mm -hmm. and that's what he did, heading for South Georgia. They landed on South Georgia, so April 24th took them till May 10th. Mm -hmm. They get there, which is great. They're like, yay, land. But boo, we're on the wrong side of the island. Uh. So they actually have to walk across the Uh. island of South Georgia. As if all the walking and everything hasn't been enough. I mean, what, what else do they have to do? So it takes nine days for them to cross and reach the whaling station. They reach it on May 20th. So they left May 10th is when they landed on the wrong side. Mm. 10 days later, they're now across the island and they are at the whaling station. So that's May 20, 19/20th when they get there. Now, the whole time from this, which would be April 24th to this, the guys are just, you know, sitting back there on Elephant Island. Being like, sure hope something bad didn't happen. Eating penguins, and, wondering why right. it's called Elephant Island. Yep. It was said that their leader, the person he left in charge, which I would assume would have been the captain or his first in command, basically made them clean up camp every day and pack everything up to go because that could be the day that Shackleton showed up, returned to take them home and they wanted to be ready. Yep. So can you imagine that every day? Being like, okay, man, you pack everything back up because we're leaving. Today could be the day. And then at the end of the day, it's not the day. And you got to unpack everything and set up camp again. Well, I, I can day. see from a psychological perspective, it's it would probably be a healthy thing. It builds in routine, keeps them focused on this positive aspect that Shackleton's going to come back and rescue them. Yep. So when do you think they returned with rescue? Oh, I don't think it was, but like like three to six months later or something. Yeah, August 30th, 1916. They returned. Oh, yeah. Well, it's not too bad. Three months, I mean. Eh, April 24th. April to May, June, July, July, August. August. That's four months. That's like solid four months. But that's during like what you said during the summertime, it's winter down there. So they were having to endure some Winter in Antarctica waiting for help to come back. Yep. Yeah, officially, the the official rescue date is considered August 30th, 1916. So, yeah, talk about enduring (laughs) some stuff. All of that, and they never made it across. They never made it to the South Pole. They never made it across Antarctica. None of that happened. The documentary that we watched, right, that that kind of started this whole fascination for Mm -hmm. me, was also in tandem with this expedition that was looking for the ship. Yeah, the search for the endurance. Correct. And they knew it probably moved, they had a, a guesstimation, because they had a navigator on their team, of how far it had moved with the ice before it Right, sank. because of the ocean currents were carrying it, Correct. right? Correct. But what they didn't know is that when it sunk, it didn't necessarily sink to the ocean floor right away. It's sinking through various levels of ice, which are also still flowing. So okay. by the time it finally hit the ground, it's hard to, to guess where it was. They knew it had to be in the Weddell Sea because... The currents are circular there. If it went all the way up north, it would have circled back down around. But again, we're talking about over 100 years ago. So um, they were looking where they thought it most likely would be in a, in a grid of space, and they did not find it in that documentary. They didn't find it. There was big, big disappointment that it didn't happen. And I think that documentary, that expedition was from 2019. Yeah. Yeah, because it was pre-pandemic, and that's when they were putting it together and showing it. 
So now fast forward to 2021, and a second expedition went out just after January of this year, and they were like, let's try like another swath of area. Mm -hmm. Um, Because again, it's summer down there, and now's the time. I wonder what sort of equipment that they had, because I remember the first time around, they had like a robot, essentially, with Mm -hmm. a camera that went diving, but there was some issues with, I think, temperature, water pressure, something that they... They, they, I think they lost it, right? I can't remember. I'd have to rewatch it. But I know that there was definitely some drama around issues. it. I think it got damaged. I think it was unable to, to do the job. Yep. And they had to like pull it back up and be like, okay, we're done here. But on March of 2021, they found it. They discovered it. Basically, it had you know shifted and moved a little further than where they had anticipated. But they did find its resting place on the Antarctic seafloor. And what was fascinating was how intact it is. Right, you were mentioning that because the 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 frigid waters, you, you don't have a whole lot of biological activity happening at the ocean floor that's going to be conducive to the ship decaying. Yeah, remember, I remember seeing those pictures of the Titanic when they discovered the Titanic in the eighties. Oh, it's like all over. It's overgrown with like coral and stuff. And, and well, it's it's there's those rust, whatever those. Mm-hmm are that you know make those big rust tendrils because we're talking about a steel ship and one of the reasons why we don't find a lot of colonial wreckage is because the wood disintegrates right completely right but here is a wooden ship that is almost completely preserved you could see the sign on the back of it it says the endurance clear as day it was one of the things they could see you can see the captain's wheel like captain's wheels are the first thing to go when a ship sinks because it's wooden and it's not gonna it's not gonna survive you know, it's going to decompose really quickly. But because of where it was, it is there. They haven't released a lot of the drawings yet. But what they were doing was they were taking, you know, using these submer- um, submergibles. I don't know what you call them. Anyway, to uh, do like echo locating. Oh, okay. To, to map so use- out what is there. So we will have a very clear 3D model, a very clear picture of where it is. They can use sonar to, to, to map out the surface. Correct. Of In combination with these other things that are taking pictures. So they do have some photos and they're going to put all of that together. And supposedly, I think it's National Geographic that owns the rights, but there's supposed to be a special coming in the next couple months, I think it's supposed to be this summer sometime, where we're going to get to see that. We're going to get wow. to see all that data put together and see what that ship looks like as it sits right now um, and it's going to be very fascinating so keep your eyes on the nat geo channel if you've got disney plus you know that Na- um, national geographic is part of that yeah so it will definitely be out um hopefully they won't spend too much time on the history of what happened because that's already kind of been done to a strong extent by right. the history channel it's about- so i'm very interested to see you know what what they can find because as you remember as as i mentioned they left a lot of things mm-hmm. on the ship they only took what they absolutely needed so there's a lot of stuff well, do, potentially do you know still how far the expedition would go just cuz again the the environment is challenged i remember when we watched the documentary just the ship that they used uh to get close enough that already started to hit the um what do they call the it? Ice the ice flow. Yeah, yeah, the ice pack. Is what they and, call it. and they were starting to get trapped. So they had to dig themselves out, um, mm-hmm. which is a very treacherous thing. And I think the reason why the endurance sank in the first place, they said, was as the ice would start to reform, it essentially would crush. It was crushing the ship. Yeah. And they talk about the sounds that it made. It sounded like gunfire. 
like as as the ice was crushing the ship, the the ship would pop and crack. And like you know, can you imagine like camping all that pressure next yeah. to something and like he just hearing and, and being on it because it did that before they ever evacuated it. Right? They didn't uh, evacuate till water started coming in. Yeah. So they're yeah. hearing their ship. They're the thing that's protecting them that they're living on right now. They're hearing it just buckle and break underneath yeah. them and very slowly these weird cracks and pops and like be startled oh i would never get any sleep but what a story though yeah you know and no one died exactly. no one died i mean some dogs died www.dogdied.com well, yeah. but yes <laughs> dogs died animals died but people all those people made it huge crew of people survived over a year in antarctica well and it was interesting watching this documentary because one of the historians was talking about how that set a precedent such that the name Shackleton became sort of a commonplace name and was used anytime, say, if you were stuck in a jam, they would say, you know, start praying to Shackleton or something. I forget exactly yeah, what it was. Be, but Yeah. Like summon, summon that spirit. Summon, summon the summon spirit that, of Shackleton. Right, exactly. Like just, you know, call call on that strength that that man had. That was a will to live and a will to get all of his crew home. I know, right? So the past two years being challenging with COVID, just, just stop and pause for a moment and think about being trapped in Antarctica for, say, the duration of the pandemic, I, I'd probably take the pandemic. I'm yeah. sorry. So, yeah. I got Netflix. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they didn't have Netflix back then. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's a fascinating story. And if you want to check out the book, um, I found it. Uh, it's called Shackleton's Incredible Voyage. Endurance is the name of the book. It's by Alfred Lansing. Um, you can find that in, you know, where you buy books. Where do you buy books these days? On the internet. <laughs> right, wherever you buy books, you can get it. It's a good book. Um, it's an older book. It's been, you know, but it's got pictures. It has a lot of the story in much more detail than what I just gave you. Um, it's genuinely fascinating. I highly recommend checking it out. Yeah, no doubt. Well, thank you so much for that segment, Mary Angela. It was wonderful. You're welcome. Please stick around, folks, for Who Are the Musicians in Your Neighborhood? Uh, we will be joined by Mr. Benny Barksdale Jr. So please don't go anywhere. Stick around. We'll be right back. You're listening to 92.9 FM G-Town Radio. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Now it's time for our segment, Who Are the Musicians in Your Neighborhood? And today I am honored and privileged to introduce a very fine gentleman by the name of Benny Barksdale Jr. Welcome, Benny, to the show. Hello. Oh, thank you so much, Eric. And I'm, I'm so happy and honored to be here. My goodness. Thank you for taking the time. So please educate our listeners. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, um, it, it, it goes way back. I'm, I, I come from a musical family. My, my father was a jazz drummer, and of course, my, my mom played piano, and my, uh, my, my aunt. And uh, it just, you know, I was just in a, you know, all into the music all together. You know, my, actually, I was, I was playing a clarinet uh, in elementary school, and and by, since my father was a jazz drummer, he wanted me to, 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 uh, to start playing saxophone. <laughs> so uh, it all came down. When, when I, when I, uh, it's a funny thing, you know, when, when I saw a saxophone, I told my father, I said, uh, you know, I, you know this, this sax is like, 
there's so many keys on there. I don't know where I could play that. <laughs> so, um, you know, one thing led to another, you know, I, um, after I left the uh, elementary school playing clarinet, I, I switched off to, to alto sax and uh, I, I played alto uh, in, in, in the uh, junior high and in, the, in my senior high, I, I played in the, in the uh, um, marching band and concert band and, and one thing led to another. And uh, I got a chance to uh, you know, go on the road and, uh, you know, play with different amazing artists, you know, like um, Evelyn Champagne King and, and uh, Jimmy McGriff. And I mean, it just, you know, one thing led to another, you know, and I was just so honored to be with him, you know, it, it was great. Wow. So have you been, you're based out of New Jersey, correct? Uh, yes. Yes. I'm, I'm, orig- I'm originally from Baltimore, Maryland, actually. Oh, Okay. Yeah, that's that's my that's my hometown, and uh, of course I, 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 I uh, when I, I left my uh, actually um, living in in Richmond, Virginia. That's where I met my wife. Uh, I got the break of of uh, playing with Evelyn Champagne King. So uh, Evelyn, at that time, she wanted all her musicians to be up in the New York area. So that's where that that's when I moved from uh, Virginia to, to New York. And uh, I, I uh, 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 started touring with, with Evelyn. And then from, from New York, actually, I moved to New Jersey. And that's where I'm residing now. You know, I'm playing with all the different you know, local bands here in the New Jersey area. And then in, in Philadelphia, I, I, um, I, I you know, worked with some of the uh, musicians in Philly. Um, like for one thing, I mean, that's where I really got to really know a lot of the big musicians. Uh, I mean, you know, working with uh, the, the Jolly Brothers, you know, Brett Jolly and all them guys. Yes. And, and then, you know, they introduced me to all of, all of these amazing musicians. And that's how I got, you know, got to really you know, uh, enjoy playing music and, 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 and meeting all these fine musicians. You touched a little bit on, you know, that, that it was your father who suggested the saxophone because it, I just, you know, from listening to your music, you, you know, you really do, you have an excellent style with it. But what was it about, you know, you said one thing led to another, but like how, how, how did you overcome the like, okay, this seems really daunting to, I really want to play this instrument. Like, like why, why the sax, I guess is my real question. <laughs> well, well, actually by listening to some of these, uh, amazing saxophonist, uh, listening to uh, Grover Washington Jr., who was a real good friend of my wife and I. And, and then, of course, I'm just listening to uh, Maceo Parker. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up listening to, listening to him. And then, of course, uh, you know, all the other greats like David Sanborn and Dave Cars and Richard Elliott. And it just inspired me, you know, to really, really want to really display sax, you know. Nice. <laughs> Now, digging back into some of the, the names of folks that you've played with, there's, there's some very prominent individuals on that, on that list. So one of the ones I believe uh, I came across was uh, you had at one point played with Alicia Keys. Am I correct? Yes, that's correct. So tell me a little bit about that occasion. What, how did that come about? Uh, and what was you, because you, you, this was for a performance that was televised, right? On national television. Yes. Yes. Well, actually the, how that all started was, uh, I have a, a real good friend of mine who, who's also a saxophonist and, 
has played with uh, Alicia Keys for uh, many years. Um, his name is Dave Watson. Mm-hmm. And he was also a music teacher, band instructor. And um, one night he called me um, and asked me, uh, would I be able to uh, uh, do the first leg of, of um, Alicia Keys's tour? Because he couldn't do it. He couldn't leave the, you know, the Department of Education, you know, to, uh, you know, to travel. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, he called me really early in the morning. And I mean, I was wondering, who in the world is calling me? <laughs> you know. And it was Dave Watson, and he was asking me if would I be interested. And I, I mean, I thought I was dreaming when I got this phone call. Right. Uh, he said, I told him, I said, sure. So um, um, he told me that, you know, well, I, I got to um, rehearse. It was uh, about, oh, about three or four weeks of rehearsals in New York with Alicia Keys. And, um, and they signed me on to do the tour. I, I, I didn't get a chance to do any of the overseas tours with her, but uh, you know, I, 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 you know, I got a chance to do all the in the states, and then was really honored to do the um, Grammy, the Grammy Awards. Uh, with, and she, she had this, the, you know, this this um, hit out falling, and uh, that's uh, that was uh, when I went on tour. You know, I mean, I got to, you know, that was that was like a dream come true. To, you know, you know, to be on the Grammy stage. You know, right. Playing. That's yeah, that amazing. Was, Oh yes, I mean, so I, I never will forget that. That was that was, I never will forget that. So anyway, um, you know, it, it was an honor. It was an honor, and here it was, it, you know, playing with Alicia was, I mean, she treated her musicians uh, with royalty. You know, we we had really nice uh, tour buses and all. You know, it was really nice. We enjoyed that. <laughs> That's excellent. That's awesome. So tell us a little bit about this song and your album that we're, we're talking about today. The, the title of it is The Heart and Soul of Benny Barksdale Jr. Yes, that's my, that's my latest smooth jazz CD. I've always wanted to do a, a smooth jazz CD, and uh, it was under the direction of a friend of mine, Butch Ingram, who's uh, he's the, the Society Hill Orchestra. Mm-hmm. And um, that's how I got to uh, do, that, do that album. Yeah, so I downloaded this album, and really, really fine album, by the way. You've got 12 tracks on this whole album. A number of them are cover tunes, and just to name a few of these, there's Just the Two of Us, Sweet Thing. You've got this this one track that I'm in love with, The Wine Light. That's, that, that song is killer. And then you've got a version of Over the Rainbow and Georgia on My Mind. But then you've got a couple original tunes. And then I just have to highlight this one. At the very end, the last track is a recording of Grover Washington Jr. calling you out at a live concert. And then pulling you up on stage. (laughs) So when, when was that? Well, the way that happened... Well, uh, Grover was a guest on uh, uh, a a radio show out of uh, New York. And um, uh, he was, you know, accepting people calling in, you know, if they could, if they were lucky enough to get through, Mm -hmm. you know, to talk to Grover. That's how I got, I didn't know Grover at all. I mean, uh, and and I kept calling 
uh, you know, every time I call, you know, the line was busy. You know, the people were calling that number, you know, calling the radio station. Right. But I, was lucky, I was lucky enough to get through. And um, I, I got to talk to Grover, and one thing led to another. I was, you know, telling him that I was a, a saxophonist, and uh, I, I, my dream was to, you know, I was, I've always wanted, I wanted to, to, to study under him, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, he, he, he liked what I was, what I was saying. And I, he was just out of clear blue. He asked me, well, you know, where, where am I playing? And I, I told him, I said, well, I told him I was, you know, I, I do a lot of local, local gigs. And he, out of the clear blue sky, he asked me, he told me, well, why don't I bring my horn down to where he's playing? I, I, you know, I didn't know where he was playing. He was playing at the, um, at the Count Basie Theater in Red Bank, New Jersey. So he, uh, out of the clear blue, he asked me, well, why not bring my horn down? He wanted to hear what I, what I sound like. Wow. You know, I, this, is, this is like, I, I thought I was on cloud nine when he asked me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, you know, I, I, I brought my horn down to the theater and um, the uh, security guards escorted me back to where to his dressing room and uh he told me to take my horn out and see what i you know what i sounded like and i played a couple of riffs and he liked what i what he heard you know i was playing a couple couple little things and um he liked the sound and my, my tone and all that so you know after that he told me he said okay you know i put i put my horn back in the case i left it in his dressing room and i went on back out you know into the theater to enjoy the show with my wife mm-hmm. you know because it was he was he was the headliner, and the other the the other person was a keyboardist by the name of Onaji Allen Gum. He was, and of course, like I said, Grover was the headliner. So I got to, you know, get out, went out to the audience and then sat and and enjoyed the show. And and at the end of the, uh, uh, when we, after he was on, the, the end of his song, his show rather, uh, he was playing Mr. Magic. Yeah, one and of his signature he, tunes. Right. So he, you know, by my sitting out there, you know, I was there with my wife and in, in the audience, and he called me up. He wanted to know. He, said, he told me, he said, "Come on up, and uh, let's see, if we can we can do do so do Mr. Magic together." I was like, I couldn't believe I I was hearing this, <laughs> and my wife, my wife, can I, I, you know, I, you know, at that time, I, well, you know, I didn't really hear him hear him calling my name out. So my wife told me, he said, Benny. Robert's calling your name out. Come on up. <laughs> so I said, what? <laughs> you know, so I got up there, you know, and the crowd went ecstatic, you know. The applause was like unbelievable. And they, they his his uh his his guys, you know, put my horn back together and I came out on stage and I got a round round of applause and and he, you know, after he took his first ride. Then I went on and took and, and played the solo. Played nice. The solo. Nice. And uh, man, it just it was like unbelievable. You know, I, I I couldn't believe that I was standing beside a giant. You know, playing Mr. Magic with him. Right. Uh, how how often you come across an occasion? I mean, they must have been on cloud nine. That that's amazing. What kind of break could you get? Like, I mean, I mean, who? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's like you know, it was like unbelievable. You know. So tell us about Fran's theme, the song we're going to play. Well, I um, I was at the piano and I was just playing a couple of, you know, uh, notes on it. I, I, I thought, it, I, you know, I said, I said, well, this, this sounds kind of good. So um, I had a, a a good friend of mine who I, I play locally 
uh, her name is uh, Meg Hansen, and uh, uh, she liked she liked the melody also, and so she helped me in and 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 really orchestrating it, you know, a lot better, you know, with the chords and everything. And I, I wanted to do something for my wife. You know, I wanted to, wanted to, you know, I, I told my wife I wanted to to uh, uh, dedicate a song to her, and that's how that that's how that came about. Nice. Well, we're going to take a quick listen to this song. Again, this is called Fran's Theme, and this is on the album The Heart and Soul of Benny Barksdale Jr. Let's take a listen. Thank you. 
I love that tune. I can definitely tell it's it's written for your wife. The first thought that hit me when I heard this tune how was how cinematic is this? Yeah. Well, I'm listening to the song. I can picture the two of you sitting on the beach watching the sunset. Where can we find your music? It's everywhere, actually. On uh, you can go, they can go to uh, Google, to uh, Amazon, uh, uh, Spotify, iTunes. I understand that uh, it's doing very, very, very well over in the UK already. So that you might, you might get another like early AM call saying, <laughs> "Hey, you got to be over there. We were getting you on a flight for a tour." That well, would... you know. Plus, plus, I have a lot. Of, I have a lot of friends that live out in the LA area, and they said that they've been hearing a lot of my cuts from the album on, on uh, what is it, uh, uh, iHeart Radio or whatever. Oh, um, oh yeah, great. But if people want to find your music, again, it's not hard to find. Just look up Benny, B-E-N-N-Y, Barksdale, just the way it sounds, B-A-R-K-S-D-A-L-E, Jr. And uh, you will you will find his music. He's got, there's there's a number of albums that you have uh, just, just on um, Apple Music that I can pull up really quick here. So, uh, Well, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for talking to us. Well, yes, it was a pleasure, and I, I, I do want to say I, I want to thank all my fans for all the support that I, they, they, they've given me through the, through the years. I mean, I, I appreciate I appreciate and, and love everybody, and uh, really, I, I, wonder, I, want, I, I just want to, you know, put out more, more, more music and, and let people hear it. Well, we look forward to the next album. Definitely. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for being a guest on our show. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, this was certainly an interesting episode. I've had a good time. How about you? Oh, this is wonderful. Shackleton, Benny Barksdale Jr., what more could you ask for? <laughs> it's been great. Thanks for listening, everybody. And don't forget, if you've got some thoughts or ideas or, or just, you know, want to give us a, 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 a message, shout out on the Instagrams. Yes. You can find us on social media. We are What Do You Know About That on Facebook and Instagram. Or you can email us at What Do You Know Gtown at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And we are always open to suggestions of things you'd like to know about so hit us up please do and we'll see you in two weeks all right